Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Oh, good morning, everyone. Would you stand with me and read our text for today? Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Thank you. The biography of Reese Howells is just riveting reading. Howells was just a young Welsh coal miner, very humble beginnings, but he was committed to obey God and became a powerful intercessor in prayer. All during World War II, he and those at his college fought unceasing prayer battles, all, all after seeking the Holy Spirit's direction. They would petition for very specific interventions from God on behalf of their country, their embattled country, their country under attack. And these prayers were repeatedly, miraculously answered. During the Battle of Britain, they sent up continual prayer for their country's deliverance. On September 15, 1940, Britain had exhausted its air defenses. Defeat was inevitable. And then the Luftwaffe bombers just broke off their attack and turned back home. What happened? Why, for no apparent reason, did the Luftwaffe on the verge of victory over Britain stop their bombing? In her book, Hand on the Helm, Catherine Pollard Carter records this. Amazing reports came from downed Nazi pilots. Several were quizzed as to why they had turned back when only two planes were attacking them. Two, exclaimed one pilot. There were hundreds. A Nazi intelligence officer captured still later came closest to disclosing the divine source of the mirages which had confused the Luftwaffe pilots. With the striking of your Big Ben clock each evening at nine, the Nazi told the British intelligence officer, you used a secret weapon which we did not understand. It was very powerful and we could find no countermeasures against it. Carter continues in her account, he was right. There was a powerful force set in motion each evening as Big Ben struck nine. It was the powerful force of a nation in heartfelt prayer against which no countermeasures could hope to prevail. A nation in prayer to the omnipotent God of creation. Each evening as Big Ben in, in the clock tower of the parliament building struck nine, the people of the British Isles and of the far-flung English Commonwealth halted for the famous 
moment of prayer. Friends, God's people are called to fight in a spiritual battle that is increasing in intensity. We don't have to look far to see evidence that this is true right here in Canada. Startling challenges to long-standing rights and freedoms are taking place. Just in the last few days, an Alberta school board told a Christian school that any scripture that could be considered offensive to particular individuals should not be read or studied in school. Ontario passed a law which will now not allow parents to help guide their children through gender issues. It gives government agencies the right to take children away from parents who the state believes are not sufficiently supportive of their child's chosen creed or gender expression. A federal law was passed which adds gender identity and gender expression to the list of prohibited grounds of discrimination. But these terms are not defined in the legislation. The new law's critics say anyone who resists addressing an individual by their chosen identity could be charged with hate crimes, fined, forced to undergo anti-bias training, and even jailed. Foremost among these critics is University of Toronto psychology professor Dr. Jordan Peterson. He believes the new law is an unprecedented threat to freedom of expression and constitutes compelled speech. These very new developments, and there are several others I could mention, are seen by many observers as removing important and protections and rights from Canadian citizens. What can we do about this troubling trend? Uh, I'll talk about that in a few moments. Our Constitution's Charter of Rights and Freedoms affirms that Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God. It also affirms that everyone has the following fundamental freedoms, freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression. But these bedrock safeguards are being blown to pieces by governments at all levels. What are we to do? This is not the first time in history for that question to arise. Jeremiah, in our text, was written to God's chosen but rebellious people. So he had allowed them to be removed from their promised land and taken as captors to wicked and ungodly Babylon. But God graciously sent them a message through his prophet Jeremiah, giving them instruction about how to handle this unwelcome change. And like all God's word, that message also contains important wisdom for us today. This morning, let us consider what makes Canada a great nation. What makes any nation great in God's eyes? And what is our role as followers of Christ in the future of this great nation? We see a lot in the news about how our neighbors to the south went to make their country great again. But we are proud to call Canada our home.
I've represented Canada at meetings in over 50 other countries. I can tell you that no place I have visited is the equal of this great land. Today we... Today we celebrate the sesquicentennial of Canada's birth as a nation. Sesquicentennial. Well, that's just a fancy word for 150th anniversary. Canada is just a youngster as nations go, but it has now completed its third jubilee anniversary. Unlike many countries that have just a dry season and a rainy season, Canada actually has four seasons. First comes almost winter. <laughs> then, of course, winter. Followed by still winter. <laughs> and finally, that time of year that we all look forward to, construction. There are some interesting misconceptions about our country. Visitors have posed some rather startling questions. What time do they turn on the northern lights? <laughs> How do you live in winter when it's dark 24-7? Do the police have cars or do they just ride horses? <laughs> I plan to see Niagara Falls and Banff. What else should I do that day? But I've seen firsthand how Canada is a beacon of hope to many nations around the globe, providing them with something they can aspire to. They envy our rule of law, relative lack of corruption, peaceful communities, freedom and opportunities. We are universally viewed as friends and partners. In the eyes of most people, Canada ranks among the great nations of the world. And as our Constitution states, Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God. In a legal sense, this affirms the source of rights and nationhood. It acknowledges that rights and freedoms require a foundation that transcends human affairs. Psalm 72.8 praises God and says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea. It was this verse which inspired the Fathers of Confederation to name our nation the Dominion of Canada. It is inscribed over the east window of Parliament's Peace Tower. The words from sea to sea in Latin are also found in Canada's coat of arms. These and other scripture references on our parliament buildings are enduring reminders that reverence for God underpins a great nation and that the right of sovereign rule belongs to him. Then what makes a nation great in God's eyes? At the time God's people were carried off to Babylon, it was the capital of the greatest most powerful empire there has ever been. Babylon's roots re reached back to the dawn of civilization. The Greek historian Herodotus said that in magnificence there is no other city 
that approaches it. The prophet Jeremiah described it as the praise of the whole earth. In this illustrious city were Nebuchadnezzar's hanging gardens, a botanical marvel considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Babylon, but Babylon was also the epitome of arrogance. Inscriptions from the Chaldean archives have illustrated the haughty disposition of the, that characterized the Babylonian rulers. And this pride, coupled with brutal cruelty, was an affront to God. He promised to visit and punish the king of Babylon in his land in Jeremiah. And almost 200 years before it was conquered, the prophet Isaiah declared, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the graven images of her gods are broken unto the ground. Both the Bible and secular history tell us that God carried out his promised judgment. Mighty Babylon was not great in God's eyes. What does make a nation great in God's eyes? God doesn't leave us guessing about that. He provides the answer in Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. What is righteousness? It's right standing with God. It's to abide by, to follow, to obey his moral and just principles and guidelines for living. These guidelines emphasize being honest and fair with others, doing what is right by them in the sight of God. Righteousness in a nation includes nonpartisan administration of government, impartial equity between persons, public space given to worship of God, the general practice and affirmation of virtue and protection virtuous people. Mercy, humanity, and kindness to strangers and enemies. And I would add to that, living within our means, not encumbering our children with debt that will cripple their future. The practice of justice and moral excellence by a nation exalts it in the, size of, in the eyes of God and of all around it. It brings privileges and blessings which make a nation honorable and great. But a nation's moral excellence depends on its citizens, doesn't it? And as individuals, we are made truly righteous only by accepting Christ's payment for all our wrongdoing, his work on the cross of forgiveness and cleansing. When we invite him into our hearts and lives, that choice that we make puts us in right standing with God, gives us his power to live holy lives here and now, and also prepares us for the life that is to come. Proverbs contrast righteousness with wickedness, immorality, and wrongdoing. Neither reveres God nor respects people. Where wickedness prevails, crime and evil have the upper hand. Profanity and indecency become 
the norm. Then a people fall under God's judgment. They fall from greatness. That's what God tells us. And his word is full of examples of it occurring to his own chosen people as well as to other nations, such as the Babylonians. What, then, is the role of the people of God in preserving righteousness in Canada? So we will continue to be elevated among the nations of the world. In our text, God lays out a very practical blueprint. We are told to do two things. Seek our country's peace and pray to the Lord for it. How do we go about seeking our country's peace? I want to suggest three ways. We ourselves must live peaceably. We are salt and light in the society around us. We should be aware and engaged citizens. So first, God's people should live peaceably. Those most committed to obeying our Lord ought to make the best citizens. In 1 Peter 2.17, God tells us, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, we are instructed, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is not about false modesty, but about affirming excellence in others rather than trumpeting our own achievements. It's seeking the best for others rather than for ourselves. In case you thought that was pushing it, Jesus also taught us, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Well, if living peaceably means obeying those instructions, some of you are mentally throwing in the towel right here and now, aren't you? There's no way we're up to those standards. But you know, there's some good news. We don't have to do this under our own steam. In fact, we can't. But there's a secret. When we invite Christ into our hearts and lives, the Holy Spirit of God makes his home within us now, in every situation, we can just ask for God's mighty power within us to help us do what is right in his eyes. So let us daily, every day, ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with his love, his goodness. Then we'll begin to habitually show kindness and unselfishness to be an encouragement to those around us. And let's begin with our own closest family members. Sometimes we're nice to everybody but our own family, aren't we? You know, they're the ones that have to live with us day in and day out. And then we can expand that grace to our wider family, to our friends, our 
neighbors, our co-workers, to all those with whom we come in contact day by day. A woman I know had to deal regularly with someone who just seemed to go out of her way to be hurtful and cause difficulty. My friend came to realize, though, that her resentment and anger toward the other woman was not pleasing to God. So she asked the Lord Jesus to give her his love, his attitude toward this person she thought of as her enemy. The Holy Spirit surprised her with a very unique plan. Every holiday and special day, she anonymously sent the woman a beautiful, specially chosen card. At the end of the year, my friend found she had a completely different attitude toward the other woman. She began to care for her, even love her. And they now have a friendly relationship. We can always count on Christ's mighty power within us to help us live peaceably. By honoring God in our relationships, we contribute to the peace of the place where we live. Second, we are the salt and light in the society around us. Some of us are pretty dim bulbs, aren't we? Every morning, we need to ask Jesus for an attitude of dependence on him, obedience to him, and love for him. Only the cross of Christ provides the healing and change that will bring peace and spiritual health to our own hearts, to our homes, to our places of work, to our communities, and to our society. Philippians 2.15 tells us that we can be salt and light in the world by being blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Have you ever wanted to be a star? Well, this is your best chance. Read God's word daily. You'll be surprised how often something you've read there allows you to help and encourage others. And third, we ought to use our democratic freedoms wisely and be engaged citizens. You know, a lot of people feel their home is in heaven and they don't want to get involved in the mucky business of politics here on earth. But a preacher once said, yes, Christians are only travelers toward a better country. They're at an inn which they will soon leave. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't care if it's broken into by robbers or goes up in flames. Show proper 1 Peter 2:17. God tells us, show proper respect for, to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Sorry, got my pages mixed up. Okay. Democracy has been defined as rule by the people. Take your rulership seriously. It matters. Your vote matters. As the saying goes, those who refuse to become involved in politics are destined to be governed by those 
who will. Get out and vote at each and every opportunity. It is the power we have been given to have a say in who holds office, who holds the decision-making power, and to make them accountable. It's hard work examining the issues and the choices, but we need to do that and prayerfully consider which we want to endorse. Be aware of the decisions that are being made on your behalf and use one, more than one source of information. Avoid falling for fake news or overblown scaremongering, as bad enough as it is. And recognize that not everyone who is a Christian is truly capable of sound leadership. That shouldn't be our only criteria. Earlier I mentioned troubling attacks on your constitutional freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression. You might be asking, what else can I do? You are not powerless in the face of these developments. Just this past week, a local politician was forced to cancel an e event that appeared to offer special access to those who were willing to pay a very high ticket price. Office holders do not want to find themselves on the wrong side of public opinion. Your individual voice may seem small, but make it heard. It has been said that for evil to prevail, it is only necessary that good people do nothing. Contact your MP, your MLA, your city councilor, your scoreboard representative, whichever is appropriate. Keep your call or email clear and to the point. Less is more. State what concerns you and why it concerns you. Place your comments in the context of the rights of citizens and the best interests of society as a whole. Civil authorities just don't respond to religious talk or quotes from the Bible. So speak from your heart, but use language that will make an impact in a secular context. Be logical and accurate and do show a godly attitude. After all, we are ambassadors for Christ. If you belong to Christ, you ought to reflect his patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. You can also work to build wider public support for your position in both the church and the broader community. Churches coming together with one voice have a great deal of impact, and a broad cross-section of citizenry voicing disagreement really gets attention. Social media is increasingly effective in shaping public opinion on the issues. Raising concerns at gatherings and meetings can also help get people involved. Encourage others to post comments that will help raise public awareness and pushback. Just remember that when a political office receives scores of emails, all written with the same prepared text, those would just be written off as spam. Ask God for discernment on how to wisely exercise your democratic influence. The democratic engagement, although it takes time and effort, is an important avenue to care for your country.
Now, there's a second instruction in God's message to his people through Jeremiah is to pray to the Lord on behalf of the evil empire that invaded their land and brutally dragged them off as captives. Well, that's a pretty tall order. But the same instruction is echoed in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Romans 13, 1 and 2, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. All this was written during the time of the Emperor Nero, who was said by the historian Tacitus to have seized Christians, have them coated with tar, set on fire, and use their burning bodies to light his palace gardens at night. He was a diabolical, cruel persecutor of those who followed Christ. So prayers for those in authority are out of obedience to God and to petition him that our troubles may not be increased before deliverance comes. You know, there's so much we could say about this matter, prayer for our nation, but we have time for only one other very important point. It is that the church is the bulwark, the line of defense, standing against the destroyer of humankind. Jesus directly tells us, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In his thought-provoking book, Destined for the Throne, Paul E. Bilheimer writes, through the use of prayer and faith, the church holds the balance of power in world affairs. The church is the mightiest force for civilization and enlightened social consciousness in the world today. The only force that is contesting Satan's total rule of human affairs is the church of the living God, and the restraint upon him generated by spirit-inspired prayers and holy lives of God's people. Like Reese Howell and other prayer warriors during the Battle of Britain, we too are engaged in a spiritual battle. And through prayer, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, we can partner with God and change the course of events. So this weekend especially, we've been thanking God for Canada. We've celebrated the birth of this wonderful land and our joy that it is our home. We're glad to contribute to its continuing well-being. And Stature is a great nation. We're proud citizens of Canada. I once heard a new Canadian citizen describe Canada as the promised land. But you know, the truth is, our time here is brief at best. A journey into eternity awaits all of us. 
So I want to ask you an important question. Are you also a citizen of heaven? God tells us in Hebrews, Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Christ reminded his followers that my kingdom is not of this world. Is your name written on the citizenship rolls of his eternal kingdom? My father has been a pastor for over 60 years. He's 90 now. So sometimes we talk about the journey that he will soon be taking into the presence of his Lord. I was reading a, a fascinating book called Glimpses of Heaven by a hospice nurse, Trudy Harris. It made me ask dad, has anyone ever told you about seeing heaven? Here's what he had to say. Yes, one such story was told to me by a couple who are very dear friends of mine. I often visited Andy and Rose who were in their 80s. They attended the church where I was pastor. Andy claimed to be both a Christian and a communist. He had many doubts about God and the Bible. Andy was a very quiet introvert and a genius in some respects. His wife, Rose, was in a wheelchair. On that visit, after some small talk, Rose spoke up that she wanted Andy to tell me his story. Tell him, tell him, she urged. So Andy did. He had recently been hospitalized with a serious bout of pneumonia. He heard the doctors around his bed saying that he was gone, dead. He remembered walking down a corridor where people were coming and going. Then he entered a room where there were others. He stated, I just stood there, not knowing what to do. Finally, someone came up and said, can I help you? He said, I'm thirsty. The person gave a smile and said, we don't drink here. He was perplexed. He just stood there a while longer. Another person came and asked if he could help. Andy said, I'm hungry. The person said, we don't eat here. Then he asked, who are you? And he gave his name. The person said, we do not know you here, but we know your wife, Rose. Dad told me, I'll never forget this. You won't believe it, he said, but I looked over at Rose and she wore the most beaming smile you can imagine. Her face just shone with a light that was truly heavenly. It reminded me of the description of Moses' face when he came down from the mountain after talking with God. Rose exclaimed, they know me there. They know me there. Her face was absolutely radiant, Dad said. Andy went on with his experience. He said he still didn't know what to do. So he just prayed a little prayer that God would send him back. 
and immediately he was back in his body in the hospital. The doctors couldn't believe it. They told him, you were dead. You died. He said, no, I was just on a trip. He, he informed Dad, he said, now I do not doubt any longer. He died about three months later, having never fully recovered from the pneumonia. I asked Dad, if, was Andy any different after that experience? Dad said, oh yes, oh yes. He was very much different. Before, he had always questioned, doubted, he was a little of a communist and a little of a Christian. But now he wholeheartedly believed that what God says is true. Friends, no one knows how. No one knows how Andy came to have that experience. But we do know one thing for sure. Each of us will one day make our way into eternity. When you reach the gateway of the city with eternal foundations, where Christ will reign forever and ever, will they know you there? May God keep our land glorious and free, and may each of us be prepared for our eternal home through faith in Christ. Thank you for allowing me to share with you this morning. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.